0: This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoy the show, you can now become a supporter. The whole thing takes about a minute. If you're interested in doing that, go to glow.fm slash E2. That's glow.fm slash E2. This episode is sponsored by RBC. For Canada's on the go entrepreneurs, RBC has just launched its latest solution to help make managing and running a business that much easier. Through RBC's remote account open experience, Canadian business owners can now open an RBC deposit account from anywhere at any time, ensuring that you can spend less time on administrative tasks and more on what really matters growing your business. To open an RBC deposit account remotely or learn more about solutions that go beyond banking to support your business, call your RBC advisor or contact the RBC Advice Center at 1 800 Royal20. In this episode, we chat all things cryptocurrency with CEO of Ether Capital, Brian Mossoff. We get Brian's take on the recent bull run in the space and the run up in value of both Ethereum and Bitcoin. Conversely, we do talk about past bear markets and what Brian's take is on those. We chat about Bitcoin and Ethereum as safe haven assets. We also discuss the role of major exchanges like the TSX and NYSE, access points where the average person can invest in this crazy world, and much, much more. And with that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. Here is my great conversation with Ether Capital's Brian Mossop. I am actually curious about your podcast. So how many episodes have you released? How's it going? Why did you start a podcast? Give me the background.
1: We've put out two episodes so far. And the reason that we started the podcast is cryptocurrency, the industry that I work in, the space that I love, is really hard to digest for everyday people. And I think people are curious. They want to understand what is Bitcoin? What is Ethereum? Why do these things matter? But a lot of the content that's been created is for crypto natives, people who already have a baseline of knowledge about that space and that industry. And there's a set of terms there that you're just expected to already know. Mm -hmm. And we created this podcast to try and bridge that gap. Ether Capital, the company that I run, is also about that. It's bridging that gap and saying, how do everyday people get an access point, financial exposure to this space? How do they follow a trusted group of people who understand it, who understand the technology, who are passionate about it, and be able to allocate a piece of their portfolio into that new asset class and believe that the people that they are following or or putting some money into actually understand
0: what is the signal amongst all the noise. So Ether Capital is often described as a publicly traded Ethereum ecosystem investor. So from a high level, I sort of understand it as, okay, here's this entity that acts much like a private equity firm. The caveat being that you're investing in only crypto related stuff. Is that about right? Yeah, it's it's
1: we are focused certainly on Ethereum and the infrastructure that surrounds Ethereum. So we very much believe in owning the native token, Ether, which is part of the Ethereum blockchain, and then investing in the businesses that will make up those pieces of infrastructure that will allow people to use this network longer term. So we invested in a company called Wire, who does a lot of KYC compliance, backend financial payment processing, and then we invested in a company or a project called Maker, which is a two-token system, and we own the MKR token, which has governance rights over a synthetic US dollar that we believe is also critical infrastructure to the Ethereum ecosystem so that people are able to use US dollars but have the flexibility of a blockchain. So Ether Capital is publicly traded, listed under the ticker ETHC on the NEO exchange in Canada. And we invest in these kinds of projects that we believe over the next one, two, five, ten 10 years will be very important pieces of the backbone of Web3, the next version of the internet.
0: If we were to think of money as a system of trust, a unit of account and or a medium of exchange, where are we at now with crypto as it relates to these three areas?
1: I think it's false or premature to think that these currencies or these technologies are going to replace a currency in the everyday world. So while everyone is asking, how do I use Bitcoin to pay for a cup of coffee? It's kind of missing the point. A lot of these technologies and blockchains are still very much in their infancy and they're evolving and they're testing and they're iterating and finding new ways to do things. They have a different set of properties. They have a different value proposition to something like a U.S. dollar or a Canadian dollar. So a U.S. dollar is great for your everyday transactions. It's great for buying your cup of coffee. It's great to pass around with your friends when you want to pay your bill. But long term, I think what you're seeing, especially right now in the world, is there may be a fair amount of inflation coming. uh, Given the current backdrop of COVID and the amount of printing that's happening pretty much globally, your purchasing power long term is very likely to go down. And so one unique property of Bitcoin or Ethereum is that there is a finite supply of these new assets. Whether you agree with those algorithms or not, it's kind of irrelevant because the point is that no one party, no government, no central authority can change the issuance. And that's really powerful. If you think about what dollars globally what money exists in that same kind of framework there's not a lot i mean even gold i think gets extracted out of the ground at roughly 1 or 2% per year that's the inflation rate that's the the new newly mined gold supply there's still a lot of unknowns. I don't know. Maybe they find a new way to pull gold out of the ground, and maybe it goes to 3 or 4%. Maybe there's some new way to mine under the ocean or from outer space. These things that sound crazy today, but they're, they're very possible. Bitcoin introduced that idea of hard money and said, we can have an algorithm where instead of it being a group of people in a boardroom at the Federal Reserve coming up with what the issuance should be, here it's baked into the code. And everyone can see that code and agree on the state of that system at any point in time. And no one has the single ability to change it. If I asked you how many U.S. dollars will be in circulation in five years, no one has any idea. And so while, yeah, you can, you know, in quotes, um, print an unlimited amount of money, your users, your citizens are going to find a way to hedge it. They're going to dump those dollars and they're going to hold another government's currency or they're gonna go buy gold or they're gonna stick it in real estate or equities. They're gonna do anything to hedge the inflation. And I think you're seeing that right now. The reason that the stock market's at the all-time, at an all-time high, and it feels like there's this huge disconnect between, you know, the real world economy when you walk on the streets and everything's closed for business, but then all these stocks are at all-time highs. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because everyone wants to hedge the inflation. They can't hold the dollars.
0: So let me ask you about asset asset classes. Um, maybe this isn't a, a natural transition um, into this topic. But historically, I mean, at least on the surface, it sort of seems like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general has been somewhat of a speculative market. But just listening to you, now we're talking about it as kind of a safe haven asset, similar to gold, as you've mentioned, maybe UST bills, whatever. So is that how you would categorize this world right now amidst a broader portfolio of investments, is it a safe haven asset?
1: I think it's a piece of everyone, or it should be a piece of everyone's portfolio. Whether it works out or not will remain to be seen. I think it will. I think it's important to put into context that government-issued currencies so far, there's not been one in history that has ever worked long term. So the U.S. dollar is under 100 years old in its current form. Remember, U.S. dollars used to be backed by gold, and then they left the gold standard. I think Nixon in 71 took it off the gold standard. And so these are all experiments. Now, there's social consensus around how U.S. dollars work and and what they're valued at and, and that they're accepted. And so people are more comfortable holding U.S. dollars. I don't think people consider U.S. dollars an asset class, even though in a way it is, but people are comfortable with it. Bitcoin is in transition from being this theoretical store of value to gaining the social consensus where people are comfortable holding some piece of their portfolio in that asset class. The hedge part of your pie typically has been gold, right? When there's a lot of inflation, people get worried, and so they say, "Well, what? What is there? Something? What is the asset that the government can't control that can't?" easily be confiscated although there's a whole bunch of asterisks that you can put around that but gold has acted as that sliver of the pie other precious metals um, bitcoin has had that value proposition since its inception but i don't know that it had buy-in from the wider society until more or less now and you're seeing companies like microstrategy who moved a few hundred million dollars into bitcoin last week Square, Jack Dorsey's company, put 1% of their cash reserves into Bitcoin, and I think that these things start to normalize the process. We're talking about this in the context of asset classes in this pie is that the last 10 to 20 years have largely been captured by some hedge assets and a lot of venture style betting. And what's interesting about Ethereum as a part of that pie is that it will capture some of that hedge. People who do want to hedge the inflation say, well, Ethereum has a lot of the properties that Bitcoin does, but it has something else, which is because it has a programmable layer to it, or the base layer is programmable, I should say. It does capture that venture bet at the same time. And the reason for that is on Bitcoin, you can't program the protocol, the base layer to actually do anything. A lot of people will refer to Bitcoin as a calculator. It's very secure. It's great at adding and subtracting, but you can't ask Bitcoin to do something on your behalf. You have to ask a corporation, some middleman, some third party to do the thing for you. And Ethereum, because it does have a very flexible base layer, you can program the money itself to do something. And because of that, what you're seeing is a ton of developers and companies build on top of Ethereum. And so if there are companies who become wildly successful building on top of Ethereum, it will capture some of that value. Some of that venture bet will be pulled into that same hedge bet that you made when you purchased Ethereum. And that to me is what's really exciting about
0: Ethereum different than Bitcoin. The correlation between these two though, uh, Ethereum and and Bitcoin is significant, right? So just looking at the three year performance charts for Bitcoin uh, and similarly with Ethereum, there was a big peak in value in late 2017, beginning of 2018, followed by uh, a drop and the quote unquote bear market of crypto in early 2019. But then since then, It's made a pretty steady and consistent climb back up to where we are today. Um, So how do you explain sort of this curve over the last three years, the bottoming out in 2019? and, And what do you make of the recent bull run that we've seen?
1: So on the first part regarding correlation, yes, they are highly correlated and they probably will be for the foreseeable future. But at some point, you will imagine that they have very different properties, they have very different value propositions, and they will untether. When that happens, I don't know. But currently, you're comparing, if people agree that Bitcoin is digital gold and kind of like a calculator, and and Ethereum is more like an operating system, well, you you can't really compare the value propositions of these two. And at some point, they should untether. And I think that they will. You know, you can't compare owning gold to owning Facebook. These are completely different things. But we also saw in 2020, in March, in the big uh, drop that was led by the OPEC uh, crisis, correlation went to one. It didn't matter what the asset class was. So, in a way, what we learned from that event was that all assets are correlated. Everything essentially comes down to what is the rate of borrowing. So the the cheaper it is to borrow money, the more people will lever long into riskier assets. And if interest rates rise, people will delever out of the risky assets. So I think that that's an important thing that everyone learned in March is that there was nowhere to hide in that drop. It didn't matter what stock you held. It didn't matter if it was blue chips in a bank, didn't matter if it was bitcoin or ethereum or gold, they all moved in the exact same direction. They all went down the same day. They are all currently going up. You know, the stock market is now moving back up, so is bitcoin. I think when you rewind time and you look at the cycles that cryptocurrency has gone through, you've seen many booms and busts. And the point is that each time the highs get higher and the lows also get higher. So there was a bull run in 2013. It was the first one that I participated in in a meaningful way when Bitcoin went from, you know, $30 all the way up to somewhere just north of, I think, 1000 Then Mt. Gox, at the time, the largest exchange in the world that was in Japan, uh, was hacked. I can't even remember what happened. This is so many years ago, but $400 million goes missing. Oh my God, sky's falling, price of Bitcoin, pew falls back down. I think it touched as low as maybe just above $200. And it took a few years before in 2016, 2017, it started building back up. The narrative was getting stronger. And in 2017, you had the launch of Ethereum. People were getting really excited about this new technology and the ICO boom came around and the price of Bitcoin touched 20,000, probably the beginning of 2018. And again, we enter the new bust cycle. So the price drops, And 2018, 2019, they slide kind of into a a bear market and it washes out a lot of the fraud. It washes out a lot of the people who came in for quick money and markets have a way of getting rid of people who don't have conviction. You need real conviction to hold through those bear markets. And I think what you're seeing now in 2020 is we're at the end of the bear market. That March 2020 drop was probably the end of the shaking out of the weak hands, the people who weren't in this for the long haul. It also felt to me like a liquidity crisis. But now what you're seeing is there's a lot of excitement. There has never been a better stage set for cryptocurrencies. Later this year, Ethereum 2.0 goes into its first phase, and that will offer Ethereum token holders to participate in this, you know, in quotes, mining uh, opportunity, which is called proof of stake. And they can generate a yield just by holding ETH. This has been something that's been in the works for a number of years. It's been delayed numerous times. And it's finally here. They're in the final testing phases and it's about to roll out. So people are very excited about this. And lastly, I think you have the backdrop of COVID where people are starting to question the system's that are currently in place that we all thought were stable and we all thought you could just hold your money in US dollars and everything will be fine. And maybe it will. But right now, people are questioning that concept and saying, maybe it's not such a crazy idea to have a
0: hedge. And maybe the hedge doesn't have to be gold. Leading up to November 3rd, so in in the US, what type of government plays into the hands of crypto investors, cryptocurrency or Bitcoin as an industry? What outcome perhaps works against its value proposition? Does it even matter? I don't think that it matters. I think the governments,
1: in in fairness to them, they have no choice. They have to create a whole bunch of stimulus and will probably end up with a fair amount of inflation. And it doesn't matter who gets in. They're both going to do the same thing. What we're really just talking about is are we going to print another... trillion or another 2.2 and the deficit will continue to rise. So the backdrop that this is all happening against is kind of irrelevant to the political environment. I think regardless of who's there, it's all good for the crypto industry. I mean, the crypto space has never been stronger as a whole. It's never been more accepted as an asset class or institutionalized. The fact that you have Fidelity. And yesterday there was the chair of the CFTC coming out, making a statement saying that he thinks Bitcoin's great. And he compared it to email and called Ethereum, you know, the internet. The fact that you have politicians, regulators talking about this space is a huge deal. This stuff wasn't on anyone's radar in 2012 or 2013, or even 2016. People weren't really thinking about these things as having any Long term merit, unless you were deep in the space and living your life on Reddit like myself. So I think all things are pointing towards again, there is social consensus that these things are here to stay. Whether Bitcoin and Ethereum are the winners, shrug shoulder emoji, not sure. My answer to everyone is always yes, they are probably going to be the winners. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. I'm a writer and emotional intelligence coach and the host of Humanize with Blue Tulusma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on ElectroCast, as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electric
0: acid. Is there a potential black swan here? And if there is, what is it? So there's two things to talk about here. The first is,
1: is something likely to unseat Bitcoin's position and Ethereum's position? And then the second is, what would the black swan be where the whole thing blows up in some catastrophic way? The first part, I think it's very hard to unseat Bitcoin because Bitcoin's value proposition is that it doesn't do very much. It's a very, 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 very secure store of value and that it has a finite supply. You can try and duplicate it, someone else can come out with a new proposal. What is the motivation for at this point, the banks who have started to figure out custody, the crypto natives who have accepted Bitcoin, have been using Bitcoin for 10 years, have been working on the code and battle testing it. What is the incentive to switch to someone who's just copying it? And you saw this in 20, I don't know if it was 2012 or 2013 or 2011 when Litecoin came out, but there was a host of copycats who took that Bitcoin code, which was open source and said, we can duplicate it and tweak around the formula, you know, the recipe. We can make faster block times. We can have higher issuance, whatever it is. We're just going to copy it. And Peter Thiel in his book Zero to One, which I quote probably way too often, talks about if you want to unseat a technology, you can't be an optimization of the current system. You have to be an order of magnitude better than the existing framework. And I think that that's really important to zoom out and, and appreciate because he's 100% right. You can't just take the idea of Bitcoin and duplicate it and expect people are going to run and start buying your new thing. So people tried to copy Bitcoin. There was BlackCoin, MoonCoin, PeerCoin, FeatherCoin. I own them all, by the way, or I did. Um, and none of them gained any traction. It wasn't until Ethereum that people got really excited and said, here's something new. Here's something that is an order of magnitude different or better than what Bitcoin offers. And it seems like a small change to just say, why don't you just make that base layer functional, put a a big programming language at the base layer. But it was a big deal. It, It was big enough to excite and spark the imagination of a new group of developers and say, this is, this is a big deal. It's not that they don't care about Bitcoin. It's just that this offers something new that's worth building a network around. And currently, as we're seeing competitor smart contract platforms launch, no one is able to unseat that group of developers. So they are trying to, again, optimize and say, we're, we're faster block times, there's higher throughput, we can offer scalability. And again, they're just tweaking around the recipe. They're not doing that order of magnitude of improvement. And so I don't think right now there's anything on the horizon that's going to unseat either Bitcoin or Ethereum. There's certainly people who are going to try, but I wouldn't bet on them, at least not in the long term. In terms of a black swan event, sure, there's tons of unknown unknowns out there. I think COVID was an unknown unknown. No one imagined that the stock market would one day take this 30% drop because a virus was going to spread you know, wildly around the world. The point of the black swan is that there's always an unknown unknown out there and it's hard to predict. There are bugs in the code that could be exploited. Um, But as time goes on and more eyes are watching these networks and paying attention and nitpicking, it becomes increasingly unlikely that there would be something to take down either of these two cryptocurrencies. And I think if you imagine Bitcoin's market cap over, you know, 100 billion dollars, I actually don't know what it is today if it's 150 billion, but the point is there's a bounty essentially on if you can hack this network. There's a 150 billion dollar prize out there in some way shape or form to do it. Mm-hmm. And to date, no one has taken down this network. Yep. And the same goes the same
0: goes for Ethereum no one has been able to figure out how to break this network. What is the role of the major exchanges here? So, so TMX Group, uh, the New York Stock Exchange, et cetera, who have all said they are helping to bridge the gap, let's say between financial players and crypto or legacy financial players and folks in the crypto space, preparing for high stakes, Bitcoin trading and liquidity, obviously, what does this all mean in practical terms? And is there a role for these exchanges that's meaningful here?
1: There's absolutely a role for these exchanges. I think what they've seen is the demand is there from retail investors, from funds to get exposure to the asset class and have had trouble doing so to date. There's still no true ETF that has been approved by a regulator and people are paying big premiums to get exposure to closed-end funds. And you see that through things like the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust or the Ethereum Trust that they had offered was trading at one point at a 600% premium. Maybe it was a little higher than that, a little lower. But the point is people want exposure to this asset class. And what is great about those players coming online is they understand custody. They understand safe, secure measures, how how to act as a broker dealer, um, that is appropriate to interface with retail investors. And you've seen over the last 10 years in the cryptocurrency space, a number of exchanges get hacked. The people ran off with customer funds. Uh, the exchange, I don't know, was had some buggy code and, and lost some of the assets. And so investors don't know where to turn to who can they trust. And the legacy system inherently has a lot of trust in it. And it's fantastic that they're going to come online and give people an access point. Now, whether they give people an access point to all of the assets that are out there, I mean, so far we've only really talked about Bitcoin and Ethereum, but there's a number of other really exciting tokens and, and projects. It may not be appropriate for those legacy systems to list those assets. But right now, the question is, where does my mom, where does my dad, where, where does the everyday person who's not crypto native and extremely technically savvy, where are they most comfortable going and getting
0: exposure in their portfolio? And it will be through things like those exchanges. What are the mainstream access points right now, if, if there are some, or the most trustworthy access points for the layperson to get exposure?
1: So right now, if you are in the US, most people are buying their Bitcoin or Ethereum exposure through GBTC or ETHE, which are grayscale products, the the Bitcoin trust and the Ethereum trust. Now they do pay a premium for that. And I won't go into the reason why there's that premium there. It's a little bit due to how some regulations work, but that's probably their best access point. Or they can go to Coinbase. And in Canada... It's difficult because we don't have a really robust exchange with a ton of liquidity. We have not yet seen a highly regulated exchange. In Canada, you have Wealthsimple as an access point, and retail investors can make an account there and go buy up to, I think, $30,000 of Bitcoin or Ethereum. Ether Capital has Ethereum on its balance sheet, and so people can get exposure to the Ethereum ecosystem through companies like ours. And for Bitcoin exposure, there's the three IQ Bitcoin fund, QBTC. And people can go buy that through their you know, regular broker dealer, you know, TD web broker account. So there are access points. There's they're getting better. And I hope that we will see a robust exchange. I think Wealth Simple is best positioned to create that platform that regulators are comfortable with and retail investors feel confident interfacing with a set of assets that have been appropriately vetted for
0: them and will be custodied on their behalf in the appropriate way. Mm-hmm. How do you think about blockchain and blockchain technology in Canada specifically? So a, a couple of points, um, and then I want to get your take on this. So so number one, the core development team for Ethereum was created here in Toronto um, is my, yes. my understanding. And then most of the open-sourced blockchain community, um, which was in Toronto, has left for places like Berlin, New York, San Francisco, Geneva, etc. So do you think that Canada has lost some of the major mindshare here? And what is, I guess, Canada's future role in this community? So there's no
1: question that the largest crypto projects have not been developed after Ethereum here in Canada. They have happened in New York, as you said, San Francisco, Berlin, places that have a more welcoming environment, whether it's regulatory or the mind share. There is more about experimentation and people hacking on weekends. What we do have here is a incredible group. Um, the ETH Global guys who run hackathons all over the world. They're based in Toronto. And to me, that's the the heart of the Ethereum community is ETH Global, those events. I would love to see more development happening in Canada and regulators recognize this and see that they have to create a sandbox, an open door for those developers to be able to experiment. And they've put together working groups, the regulators, to try and encourage people to build and tinker and test things without risking, you know, regulatory uh, action taken against them, whether it will be successful or not will remain to be seen, but they understand that it's important not to
0: squash out this industry, not to push the development somewhere else because we will fall behind. How did you get into all this? I know you mentioned you were, you know, got into Bitcoin when it was at 30 bucks, you were at the wave up to a thousand, uh, and this dates back to 2012, 2013. So what was going on in your life back then? How did you gain exposure to the space and why are you so excited about it?
1: So my whole life, I've been very interested in technology from when I was a kid and a teenager. I always wanted to touch and play with whatever was new and exciting. That's definitely been part of my DNA for as long as I can remember. And I went to film school and I had a a short stint in LA. I worked there for a while. I came back. I I had a film company that I started with someone I was introduced to, focusing on creative development and financing. We had some success there. It was really tough to get projects off the ground. That led into eventually I left and formed a mobile app company and decided to focus more of my time on building some piece of technology. We raised about a million dollars, but weren't in control of the financing. And there was some success there, but we couldn't we were a little ahead of our time and just couldn't get the project off the ground the way we, we really envisioned. And then I took a number of years where I kind of just floated around. I, I played around with photography for a little while. But what happened that was really fortunate for me was I discovered Bitcoin in 2012 when a friend of mine went to purchase an iPad and the guy who he bought it from told us about Bitcoin. We didn't know what it was. And like most people, they take this idea and say, that's interesting, but it's too crazy and too out there. And they put it in a drawer and never think about it again. And I started researching it heavily and got very involved in the Toronto crypto community. And then Ethereum comes about. And I thought that that was really fascinating for a whole host of reasons. It's flexibility. And it just left your imagination to run wild what you could build on top of that kind of a platform. And I started dedicating pretty much all of my free time to reading and understanding these new systems and networks and how else you can invest in and around them. And Ethereum went live in 2016 and Ben Roberts, who's the CIO of Ether Capital was building a lending service to help people figure out how to put out a market rate to margin traders on a specific exchange. And I helped him with some of the marketing for that. And the lending service got sold. And one of the investors who came along when that business got sold was Psalm Safe of Purpose Investments. And along with Boris Wurtz of Version One and John Ruffalo, who was at Omer's Ventures and a few other people, said to Ben, what do you want to do next? And so in early 2018, Ether Capital was formed. I wasn't involved. I, from the sidelines would talk to Ben, who was the CIO from day one, um, about ideas and and how they were going about their fundraising. Ether Capital didn't have someone at the helm who was crypto native, who was from the community or who had spent years in, deep in that space, building relationships and understanding what makes everything tick at its core. And in about May or June, I had connected with SOM, the executive chairman. And I think he realized that he needed someone who this was their DNA. This is what they thought about day and night. And so they realized they needed someone to come in and be the CEO of this thing that really cared about it and understood it and was it was in their blood and they were part of the community. And so I joined in July of 2018 with my CFO and President Stefan Kulikin, who had his career for ten years? He was working in traditional banking at uh, Cormark, and we joined then. And you know, it's interesting to be in the public markets. First of all, obviously, it's my first time being a CEO of a public company, and it comes with a whole host of challenges and new things you have to figure out how to navigate. There's regulators and auditors and a board of directors you have to answer to, and shareholders who are trusting you with their investment and they want to know or understand or how you're thinking about certain things. And you have to respond to all of them. And the thing is, I don't think it matters if you've been a CEO before. I think the question is, can you navigate problems that get thrown at you and think fast on your feet and have conviction in your decisions? And not all your decisions will be the right one, but you make the best choice at the time when you cross whatever road it is And you have this ability to pivot and to just keep iterating your story and the narrative and the product you're going to build and just know that over time you will figure out what that product is. You will figure out what that business is. I think if you look at lots of success, any successful company, pretty much on day one, they didn't look like the company that they turned into that we know and think of as a success story today. The single thread that's always been the consistent has been. The love for technology and the love for communities rallying around new ideas,
0: new innovations, building things that will better the world. For more on Ether Capital, where should listeners go if they want to connect with you, too, Brian, personally? Where do you hang So,
1: out? <laughs> I mean... I hang out in Toronto. There's nowhere to go these days in in COVID. But if anyone wants to just get general information about the company, they can start on our website, as you said, ethcap.co. From there, there's links to our podcast that we host. There is a link to um, our blog where we put out thought pieces and comment on trends that are happening in the industry. They can find us on Twitter. They can find us on LinkedIn. They can find me personally on Twitter. They can find me personally on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. That's kind of the beauty, I think, just quickly, that's the beauty of the world we live in today. You can find and interact with anyone that's out there. If there's a question that you have, ask it. We're all here to help each other gain access to information and learn and better ourselves. And the crypto community is all about that. And I love when people reach out to me and have something that they're trying to understand about this space or my views or why I see things a certain way and would love to hear from anyone.
0: Thank you so much for the time, Brian. This has been great. We'll connect soon. Thank you very much for having me, and chat soon, definitely. Hey, what's happening out there, everybody? This is Lawrence Ross, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about my podcast, The Lawrence Ross Show. Egomaniac. It's a two-hour weekly exploration into my mind. I also do sketches, celebrity impersonations. You're out of order! And I also do song parodies. Not too shabby for a blind guy. Not only are you visually impaired, but you are geographically impaired. New episodes are released every Friday. Check it out on your favorite podcasting platform or listen to it here on Society 13 on ElectroCast.